into positions of hopelessness and helplessness. The government gives them the drugs, builds bigger prisons, passes a three-strike law, and then wants us to sing God Bless America. No, no, no. Not God Bless America. God damn America. That's in the Bible for killing innocent people. God damn America for treating us citizens as less than human. God damn America. As long as she tries to act like she is God and she is supreme. Who's ready for a roller coaster of a podcast? You know, it's going to go up and down and all over the place and and for some reason, you're not going to be sitting down. You're going to be like standing with a thing that's just sort of jammed into your crotch that a teenager passes by and tugs oddly. And then you realize, wait a minute, roller coasters are all operated by high school students and they're wildly dangerous machines. This shouldn't be happening. And then you'll be rocking it off into a podcast. That's right, Jake. I hope you're buckled in for this podcast or you'll be killed. You'll you be might. killed instantly. <laughs> if you are killed, it'll be covered up for, uh, you know, PR reasons. There's no other reason than to make money because that's how this goddamn society works. Welcome to the show. Hello, everyone. Welcome to Pod Damn America, the roller coaster, the experience. It'd be cool if they made a roller coaster out of our podcast and had like three, all three of our heads, you know, the roller coaster that goes through our mouths, a big wooden sign. That'd be terrifying. Ah, that's what it's like listening to yeah for andrew's part you're like you become the microphone and he's moving you around (laughs) you're gonna fall off the table i have an arm now (laughs) i have a mic arm that does the job yeah you sound way better bro it's called the segway oh there we go yeah a segway themed roller coaster that would be very mild but i would be into it uh, I'm not a roller coaster person, which is why I declined to accompany these gentlemen to Six Flags in New Jersey uh, this week. But regardless of me being there, apparently they still had a fun time. Dude, fucking the craziest place to be without Anders on a podcast trip because we're surrounded by BC properties all day. It's just us and giant cutouts of Superman and then no Anders Lee. Was there Green Arrow? <laughs> There was no. not Green Arrow. No, it's only I, not big. interested. I told you which ones. They only do the big ones. Yeah, I want to see Shazam. I want to see a Shazam. Ride. Costs like he $5 billion dollars to make a roller coaster. <laughs> it was really cool if they made like a Nick Fury one that was like, yeah. <laughs> rip your intestines out, comrade, or whatever. The only roller coaster that calls you slurs. the roller coaster it's like it has like ptsd it's like look out charlie's in the bushes listen Mm. up you wop fuck you need to stay buckled the whole ride (laughs) 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 hey welcome to the show everybody it's one of the smart ones today uh we wanted to kind of hide that (laughs) beginning Um, we're blending we're blending uh modes we're blending aesthetics Right. Like a roller coaster. Uh, the whole gang is here. What's up? I want to talk about the puke we saw before we get off of roller coasters. 
This is a warning for anyone who is considering riding the Superman roller coaster at Six Flags Great Adventure in Creambridge, New Jersey. Is that where it is? Creambridge? Creambridge is the name of the town that it's in. He took my white ass to Creambridge. (laughs) (laughs) So none of the roller coasters that they make in the modern world are a name they're all named after superheroes now that's just what we're doing with roller coasters they're no longer called the scary wild ride you know vortex <laughs> or whatever it's just everyone yeah. is a superhero which is fucking weird wolverine snickety snip it's not even snickety snip though it's just wolverine the ride <laughs> is wolverine the it's ride is wolverine. wolverine it's fucking weird there are two <laughs> batmans at this fucking park which is disorienting they're across from each other, like at those Starbucks in Houston. It's weird. And one of them oh. sucks. And we won't <laughs> tell you which one. <laughs> yeah. One of them was really good. And the other one sucked. <laughs> it, it, um, was like, it was like they were like trying to make fun of the other one or something. It was just like a little car that jerks back and forth and kind of hurts you. And then it ends. <laughs> yeah. See, that's the thing. Roller coaster. Uh, theme parks. I don't like theme parks, to be honest. Some of them. The roller coasters are they're either like really high tech, you know, or the, the modern ones that like wheel you around and throw you up and down and like are just terrifying. And then there's ones that are like boring, but they're also really old and rickety. So you think you're going to die because of that. Yeah. Neither this is a fun time to me. This one, this Batman one was new and rickety. I felt like I was in the breakfaster chair from Crimes of the Future. <laughs> throws you around and shit and you digest food better it lurches um, your body into unexpected positions <laughs> with the, the superman one right so none they don't make roller coasters anymore that you sit down in. it's really annoying you're always like standing or crouching or something weird and this superman one you get in it and you're standing right and you're like oh that's weird superman doesn't stand like this and then it's like surprise and it once you're locked in it flips you into horizontal like Superman mode, like where you're like, you know, your face is out front and your feet are kicked behind you. Arms up. That's the premise of the roller coaster is that you feel like Superman because you're like, ah, flying through the air. <laughs> you must down. like this. <laughs> yeah. Um, but what's funny about it is that like you go through the ride and then like when you're done, it sort of parks you like behind the car that's currently loading in like a little space. And then you wait to slowly go like back in and then you get off. Right. If you've ever ridden a roller coaster, this weird space in the back you might be familiar with. Well, because everyone is still in Superman position that this part, it parks you right where someone else was when they vomited onto the, the floor of the metal like thing. So we, we were it stopped us right above someone's puke and the like the fumes were like coming up <laughs> so like we're just four feet away from it and it's right after you've been thrown through like a hundred loops and then you're just dangling above puke and 20 to 30 hair ties because girls are finishing the superman ride and just ripping their hair out <laughs> they, they don't want to live like this anymore that has and sometimes to be throwing up all the food in their body. <laughs> <laughs> the hair ties has to be like, ah, fuck this. And you throw them out, right? Because otherwise they would just fall out on the ride somewhere midway. Oh, man. So anyway, 
Don't ten ride. out of ten. We'll, yeah, we'll, we'll go back. That's fucking cool. <laughs> Actually, the puke was pretty funny. It was like a joke at the end of the roller coaster. So I recommend it. The kind of joke Superman would tell <laughs> yeah. when he saves you from a falling rock. He'd pick you up and he'd dangle you over puke. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And Sounds what are gross. we talking about today? <laughs> uh, okay, let me see if I can do a segue. You mentioned Nick Fury, who was a figure of the 1960s, um, part of U.S. imperialism, a, a character, a figure uh, that people associate with that. Um, we have a great episode, actually, about Nick Fury uh, on our Patreon that people can check out. I, I don't know where I'm going with it. So Nick Fury... <laughs> In a way, very similar to John F. Kennedy, um, in oh, that they're both okay. <laughs> men of the 60s who uh, have contradictions. Um, Nick Fury is all bad, to be honest. But uh, I so in all seriousness, I wanted I've been wanting to do a JFK episode for a while because uh, I think it's an interesting topic. It's something that I was sort of ambivalent about for a long time. or I had an antipathy towards conspiracy theories in general. But as over the past few years, I've been learning more and more about it. And there's a lot of stuff there that I think is some is, I, in my opinion, incontrovertible um, that there was, a, you know, a conspiracy. That's what the House Select uh, Committee on Assassination says. Um, but some on the left uh, don't think that this is worth really looking into or, or I, I shouldn't say that they don't think there is a conspiracy. They're very adamant about that and are very. Uh, wary of Kennedy being lionized as he definitely has among liberals has been. Uh, so I had to wanted to have a discussion with somebody who comes at it from a, a different angle, uh, but shares uh, the same values. And uh, so we were able to talk to, I was able to talk to uh, Robert Bizanko, um, who we will hear from right now. Let's go to that interview. Uh-huh, honey. All right. Now we are now joined by Robert Bizanko, who is an historian, a historian. I don't know if that's the correct, which one is the correct one to say, an historian or a historian, but he is uh, a uh, very distinguished professor at the University of Houston, uh, author of Masters of War, which is a really thorough um, accounting of Vietnam, uh, as well as the co-host of the Green and Red podcast. Professor Bizanko, thank you for joining us. Uh, thanks for having me on. So I'm, I'm glad you agreed to to come on the show um, because I've been this is something I've been thinking a lot about lately is how uh, sort of the, someone call it the rehabilitation or the renewed interest in John F. Kennedy, his his foreign policy, uh, the JFK assassination, all that stuff among some younger left wingers. And you have been very adamant that this is not something that we should get too invested in. Um, I just wanted to give you an opportunity to sort of lay out that case. Why should younger people not um, get too invested in the, the JFK, uh, the Camelot um, phenomenon? Yeah, I mean, first, just in terms of scholarship, it's just not there. The evidence isn't there. The people who are um, touting this work tend to be, uh, you know, movie makers and entertainers and don't have the same kind of standards so they can kind of tell a story and they can skip evidence and they can jump the shark. So I think, you know, in terms of, in terms of that, it's just not there, but, but I think for the left, especially it's really important because it kind of substitutes heroism for what I would consider political action. So you have this, this story about Kennedy 
this young, handsome martyr who was slain in the service of uh, doing peace, you know, kind of trying to bring peace to the world. And, you know, according to Oliver Stone and in a narrative that's gotten a lot of publicity, even on the left, it's been in Jacobin and Counterpunch Majority Report. Um, you know, the military industrial complex couldn't handle it because he was going to bring peace to the world and end the Cold War and reduce military spending and, and you know, create uh, a peace with Cuba and detente with the Soviet Union. So they had him killed. And, and that just substitutes this kind of heroic mythic figure for, you know, for reality in one case, but also for the need to actually organize and engage in, in political action. So in that regard, I don't think it's it's. It's not nearly as bad, obviously, but it's not terribly different in terms of its constitution than, you know, like Trump's big lie or, or QAnon stuff. It's substituting this kind of heroism. The first video I ever saw of QAnon posited that JFK and Trump were kind of the saviors working against this oligarchy and this military industrial complex. So I think there's a similarity there. And in the end, I think it's really counter counterproductive and, and in fact, dangerous for the left, especially young people on the left. OK, Um yeah, so if I lay my cards on the table, I did uh, watch the movie JFK when I was 13. And like, I think a lot of uh, young men of that age who saw it, I was was uh, very inspired by it and then kind of forgot about it for a while and was actually for most of my, I guess, political uh, life, political consciousness was a, a huge fan. Still, I'm a huge fan of a contemporary of yours, Noam Chomsky, who agrees with you on this, um, that it was was not a conspiracy. And I just kind of accepted that for a while. But I will say over the past few years, I feel like there are some things that that version of events kind of glosses over that I didn't appreciate um, prior. And I think a lot of this debate ends up being about whether Kennedy was a good guy or not. Right. And I think we would both agree the answer is no, just, you know, leaving alone the the personal aspect, serial sexual harasser at a minimum, and uh, I think is clearly um, a cold warrior and imperialist, but do you agree that there are contradictions in the American state that as leftists, we have to be able to analyze sort of objectively? And do you accept that not everybody who um, believes that there was a conspiracy uh, idolizes Kennedy? I, I, I think in some ways this may be a generational thing because, you know, I really don't know too many of people, people my age who question the official story, who, who are on the left, who like Kennedy. They just, they happen to think he was uh, killed by the deep state. Yeah, I mean, you're, you're probably right in terms of the generational differences in the way this is viewed, because you have people like Stone and Eugenio who think that, you know, Kennedy is is nearly infallible. And that's obviously preposterous. Um, you know, there clearly are elements. Of, I mean, the state isn't some monolithic homogenous unit where everybody thinks and does the same thing. And in fact, one of the areas I try to promote vigorously is that the ruling class actually has its own schisms and fissures mm -hmm. and there are very different elements. I think the ruling class did as much as anybody to get rid of Donald Trump in 2020. Mm -hmm. And right now the ruling class, you know, elements of the ruling class are actually being, you know, are out front in terms of abortion rights. So it's not a monolithic group and there are some elements in it that are, are very, you know, uh, dark and, and distasteful. Um, you know, and I think everybody knows that they conduct, I mean, John Bolton the other day, right? He admitted I've, I've participated in coups. So, yeah. but we, we know that, right? And so, yeah, not everything is done in the open, but at the same time, um, the way the capitalist kind of uh, hegemonic state operates is is pretty clear, I think, for people who want to study it. And so um, there's stuff going on. And, you know, the church committee in the 70s clearly showed the the uh, deep involvement of, of American intelligence in, you know, coups and assassinations all over the world. And, and clearly we know now that, uh, 
you know, I mean, just yesterday, we found out that the Secret Service was deleting messages on January 6th. So, yeah, clearly there, there are elements of the state that aren't operating, you know, the same way as people who kind of create state policy do. And, you know, but I don't think that's new. I don't think that's kind of comes to us with the the, the Kennedy assassination. I mean, if you study history, even you know, kind of somewhat um, peripherally, you kind of have some sense that there are different ideas there. Uh, but to have a, 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 a state conspiracy to assassinate a president, which is like probably the greatest assassination, maybe outside of Julius Caesar, right? And in world history is, is a, a totally different animal. And when we start talking about people in the military or people in the CIA, uh, a huge cabal trying to, to get rid of a president, I mean, that's that's totally different. And, and really, um, I think, it, you know, I'm kind of incredulous about it. But in terms of, you know, if you want to create a distrust of, of authority, yeah, absolutely, you should. And, you know, I, I don't follow the minutia of the assassination where Oswald was on this date or who was in Dallas. I mean, in uh, in the movie, Stone himself has uh, Kevin Costner talking to Donald Sutherland, and he refers to that as um, scenery and parlor games. And I know that, you know, I debated the Eugenio and they love to talk about all the intricacies of it. And I just, you know, to me, you know, to establish this, you have to have a motive. And I just don't see it. Kennedy was one of them. And most of these people are. Trump actually wasn't. And that's kind of the irony of it all. Donald Trump, who I think is one of the most detestable people ever in history, right? Actually isn't part of that, even though he has money and, you know, fame and, and all that. He he really was despised. I mean, Wall Street used him for a tax cut and then, you know, had no use for him. And the Republican establishment hated him. The media hated him. So, um, you know, there are, I mean, and that's an interesting counterpoise to all this, I think, the Trump phenomenon, because mm. in a sense, it's in this really bizarre way, it kind of is democratic in the sense that these people, you know, with his lies and everything. But um, to get back to the first point, my long winded answer. Yeah, I mean, I think I think there's a there's a I don't like the term deep state, because I think if you look at it more closely, if you study this and, and I study U.S. foreign policy and especially things like the Vietnam War and Cuba and places like that, this is just kind of what the U.S. has always done. I mean, forever. It had this vision of creating an empire before the war for independence. You know, in the 1750s and 60s, you had people talking about global empire. And, you know, so um, I, I think that it's clearly more sophisticated now. But I don't think, um, you know, that's really kind of the best way. I think we should just study kind of capitalism and the way ruling class structures operate, differences within the oligarchy, um, you know, how we can perhaps uh, capitalize upon those fissures, but um, to kind of see a deep state everywhere and to look for kind of heroic figures taking it on. And, you know, more recently, I'd say Bernie Sanders was kind of like that. The left, a lot of people on the left really kind of grabbed onto that as this kind of heroic figure. And clearly, I mean, even if he'd gotten to that point, I mean, he wasn't going to get to that point, right? Because the Democratic Party and the Clintons were never going to allow that to happen. So um, I think it's just better to kind of analyze these things in terms of the way they, they work within the structure of, of this kind of capitalist ruling class, this kind of hegemonic structure. Sure, I, I totally agree with that. Um, it is a bit hard for me, though, to separate uh, Kennedy from those those contradictions we're, we're talking about. Again, he was an imperialist. I think anybody who signs off on the Bay of Pigs in the first place, the you know, um, covert invasion of Cuba is, is an imperialist, clearly. But uh, and these were a lot of things that I, I really didn't know, frankly, until sort of recently, because I had just kind of assumed, yeah, JFK is an imperialist who cares. But there's a lot of stuff with that invasion that I feel like is not 
really delved into uh, that much just in general in America. Um, so for instance, um, we now know that the CIA and Dulles wanted a land invasion and they knew that the Bay of Pigs as it as it occurred would fail. They knew that would fail. We have you know, documentary evidence of that. Um, and they actually had a contingency plan for if JFK refused to invade at all. Um, and, you know, they, they wanted a ground invasion. Um, and after that happened, uh, you know, Alan Dulles, Dick Bissell, uh, were all fired. Um, JFK, you know, said he wanted to cut the CIA into a thousand pieces and blow it into the wind. Um, you know, there's a lot of stuff here. According to Arthur Schlesinger, he tried to cut the CIA's budget. Uh, is that not, uh, I mean, there's a lot of other evidence we can go into just, and, and I'm not, and I agree, not minutia about Oswald, but evidence uh, circumstantially about Cuba, about the CIA. Uh, is that not a motive, just Cuba alone, uh, the, the fissure between JFK and Dulles on Cuba? You mean to to have him assassinated? Yeah. I I, yeah, I don't see that at all. Um, I think that there were clearly plans to get rid of Castro from January 1st, 1959 on. I mean, you have meetings um, with Eisenhower, um, the uh, uh, you know, in 1959 with, with Eisenhower, intelligence officials and, and American investors, in fact, um, you know, talking about ways to get rid of Castro. And Kennedy definitely inherited that. Um, by the way, by the time of the the um, not, never mind, let me go back to that. But uh, so Kennedy, you know, kind of uh, took this on um, the military presented him with the operations plan, which had been in effect. Remember, during the campaign, he had kind of attacked Nixon right. from the right on Cuba, saying, you know, we have this this government over here and the and the Republicans won't do anything to get rid of it. So he kind of owned that and he kind of was beholden to it. Um you know, it was obviously a disastrous plan. Uh, there were actually military officials, most uh, especially David Shoup, who was the commandant of the Marines, who were telling it was a bad idea, mm -hmm. right? Um, it failed. Um, I'm not sure we know with with great evidence that that they set it up to fail. I I, I think that does that come from Talbot's book, I believe. It's from uh, uh, Talbot. Also, there's uh, yeah. a document John Donovan. Um, uh, you know the yeah, mostly from Talbot. Also, yeah. From from uh, JFK, yeah, unspeakable. I, I would not say that that's Peter Cornblue. Yeah, yeah, I, I wouldn't call that confirmed. Um, and in fact, a lot of people who study Kennedy recently have studied Kennedy wouldn't make that uh, conclusion. But you know, let's just kind of assume, you know, for a moment that it is. I mean, um, Kennedy did it. You know, he did what what the you know he he you know followed the plan through. The plan was never going to work. Mm -hmm. um, he continued a hard line against Cuba. Um, throughout that period, the idea that he somehow softened toward Cuba is just there's just no evidence for it. In fact, during the missile crisis in 1962, where Kennedy, he gets praised for that. In fact, he actually kind of, you know, really confronted, you know, Russian ships well into the ocean. This wasn't within the 12 miles way out in the ocean. Uh, the U.S. was conducting and continuing to conduct subversion inside Cuba in October of 1962. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, kind of had a brief lull because you know, there was a chance the world blowing up and then really kind of gets back to it in, in, in uh, late 1962, early 1963. In fact, Kennedy on New Year's Eve 1962 was in Miami giving medals uh, to the uh, the brigade that invaded at the Bay of Pigs. So, 
you know, uh, uh, I just, I don't, you know, I, I, I operate in this kind of scholarly world, you know, and I don't, I'm, that sounds arrogant. I don't mean it that way, but the fact is, you know, I have to use evidence. I have to do research, I have to look at documents and, and Oliver Stone doesn't have to do that. And a lot of these people who write about it, you know, don't have to do that. I know Talbot's an established scholar. I just think that, you know, you make these leaps. It's kind of like you ever go to a movie and, you know, or, or watch a, a show, you know, uh, Better Call Saul comes to mind where, you know, you fall and it's really intriguing and you're all kind of caught up and all of a sudden something happens. And later you think like, well, that doesn't make sense. You know, like mm. they just jump several stages and, you know, you're not supposed to do that when you're doing scholarship. And, but if you're writing a movie or a TV show or something like that, or you could do that. And I think a lot of these things are like that. You know, I could find documents you can read a document and kind of prove anything from it you can make connections well so and so was here and he wrote to him and he wrote to him but you kind of have to look at the the milieu in which they operate the the environment in which they operate i mean kennedy's a cold warrior he is one of them he had been his whole life he he came to power that way he was a, a friend of mccarthy he was an advocate he was a, a supporter of mccarthyism uh the stuff on vietnam i think it's hilarious because they always cite this quote from Edwin Gullion, who was a foreign service officer, you know, who Kennedy, who claims to have told Kennedy, get out of Indochina, it's a bad area in 1951. Well, in 1954, Kennedy is part of bringing no Din Ziem to power. And in 1956, Kennedy makes a speech talking about Vietnam being the finger in the dike, the keystone in the arch, you know, the, the key to our uh, survival in Southeast Asia, the survival of, you know, non-communism. Uh, as president, Kennedy significantly ramps up uh, support um, he plans a coup right before both his yams killed and then he's killed. I mean, if you're going to get out of Vietnam, why would you destabilize things and have a coup? Uh, he ignored the, the and, and this is, I think, the keystone of it all. Is like when they keep talking about the military and the industrial complex, the CIA and the military had him killed. The CIA and the military had no interest in Vietnam, none. And that's what Masters of War, the book you mentioned that I wrote, talks about. You know, so why would, you know, like they don't want to go into Vietnam. That, that, impetus for Vietnam comes from the civilians. It comes from Kennedy and McNamara and Rusk and people like that. So uh, again, and, and even with Cuba, you don't really see uh, uh, any kind of drawdown toward Cuba. You know, the Bay of Pigs fails. It's a disaster. And if anything, it forces Kennedy to dig in his heels even more in both Cuba and Vietnam, because, you know, you go to the, go online, there's tons of documents. And I would suggest that, you know, the, the, the stone people always refer to the, um, the Assassination Records Review Board documents. And there's some stuff in there, but there are so many documents just online. You don't have to leave your house if you want to write a good book about it. Right. But the Foreign Relations Series, the Department of State documents, CIA documents are all online. And, and there's just voluminous evidence of Kennedy's consistently hard line on, on all of these areas, Cuba and, and Vietnam. But he's having a, you know, he's organizing a coup in Brazil, organizing a coup in Guyana, organizing a coup in Iraq. Uh, uh, you know, um, I mean, the U.S. is meddling all over the world uh, at this point. So, you know, you're right. He's an imperialist, but he's he's one of them. He's in that world. He's of that world. The idea that these people, some deep state would would want him dead because he was becoming an apostate. Just there's nothing for it. There's just there's nothing for it. Nothing. Well, well, a lot of those those documents you mentioned, they're in the National Security Archives. And that's, yeah. um, I believe, run by Peter Cornblue. Um, he's one of them. Yeah. 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 So yeah. I, I'm curious what you think of his um, what he's written, that uh, JFK was pursuing an alternative script 
on Cuba with Castro, uh, primarily through John Donovan, who was a lawyer hired Mm -hmm. by the Kennedys uh, to negotiate for the the release of the pigs in the the Bay of Pigs. And they were actually approaching uh, rapprochement. They were they're starting to make some progress uh, before the Kennedy assassination. And, you know, of course, Castro said all sorts of uh, bad things about Kennedy, rightly so. But he was uh, very concerned after the Kennedy assassination that that this was going to be a bad thing for for peace in, in the prospects of, of that. So you, you don't accept that argument either. Especially no, I mean, I'm, I'm, I've used National Security Archive a zillion times. It's an amazing resource. And I'm familiar with Cornblue. I'm familiar with a lot of people at, at National Security Archive. John Prados is, a, is just a, an amazing scholar there. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, I've read Cornblue stuff on this. And the thing is, and, and this is something that you see a lot with people who defend Kennedy, they'll cite like Donovan or somebody like that. And it tends to be this stuff that's kind of like, you know, a, a journalist said this or somebody later said this or, you know, kind of in an oral history, somebody said this. But again, you know, look at the documents, even the Assassination Record Review Board documents. I mean, in September of 1963, the, there was a reception in Havana at the Brazilian embassy and Castro was speaking to an AP reporter there, forget his name. And he goes on a tirade about Kennedy, mm-hmm. you know, how how. Kennedy is, you know, destructive and he can't trust him or anything, you know, like that. This is long after the, the missile uh, crisis. So um, the U.S. is is continuing to ratchet up pressure uh, in both public statements and what it's doing on the ground. It's continuing to support subversion inside Cuba. So there may be some, you know, uh, it wouldn't surprise me if there are overtures to Castro. That's the way diplomacy takes place. I mean, I would say right now, you know, despite what we think, there there must be some Americans who are talking to people in Putin's inner circle. You always do that. Like, you know, you, you have kind of two or three different fronts, you know. So uh, uh, were there people talking to Castro? Probably was Castro terrified. Yeah, he thought Kennedy, I mean, Castro was afraid that Cuba would be blamed for the mm-hmm. Kennedy assassination. Uh, Cuba had nothing to do with it. That's one area on which I do agree with with a lot of these people. Uh, but in fact, the day of the assassination in November 1963, there was a, a Cuban asset in Paris was getting this silly poison pen to use to assassinate Castro. So uh, and the you know, a lot of the Kennedy apologists would say, well, Kennedy was unaware of this. And that tends to be a stock answer. Kennedy wasn't aware of this or they did this by Kennedy. And I just think that's ridiculous. I mean, Kennedy is was a good politician. He was a smart guy. He's not an idiot like Trump. You know, he's not a dumb guy at all. And McNamara and Rusk aren't dumb guys. And, um, you know, he uh, Dulles was gone by late 1961. Dulles and Bissell were gone by late 1961, too. Uh, and, and in fact, most of the people, almost all of them, I think now, the, the chiefs of staff, the directors of the CIA, they were all Kennedy appointees. Curtis LeMay, who the Eugenio puts at the center of this, apparently LeMay is kind of now the brains behind the operation. He was a Kennedy appointee. So right. um, again, I, I just, this ruling classes aren't homogenous and monolithic and they don't agree on everything. Absolutely. You know, and that's kind of what I've studied, you know, but uh, to, to take that and say, well, you know, the U S had coups in Guatemala and the U S had a coup in Iran, the U S had a coup in Venezuela. Therefore it had a coup against Kennedy. It's just, there's just no evidence for it. And that at the end of the day, I think is the key, like, where's your evidence. And it's, I don't want to hear like some quote or some meme, or somebody said something in oral history or somebody talked to a journalist. I mean, you know, you have to look at what they were doing at the time. Well, and so that's an interesting point because, so you don't think that uh, background quotes, uh, people's personal histories, their notes, uh, statements, that you don't think that's admissible at all as a scholar? No, it is. It's useful. I use oral histories all sure. the time, but if the oral history 30 years later, 
contradicts what they were doing at that time, which is really established in documents, then you have to wonder. You also have to take into account like how important these people were. Edmund Goyan is not that important to put him front and center of this. John Kenneth Galbraith, um, in terms of foreign policy, you know, Kennedy, you know, he had Kennedy's ear, but um, he wasn't making policies and he clearly is nowhere near someone like Rusk or McNamara or Maxwell Taylor. Uh, on the food chain. So yeah, you have to judge it all. There's no, there's nothing wrong with, with uh, oral histories or journalists. I mean, some journalists are, I mean, a lot of historians do crap work and a lot of journalists do great histories. So um, that's not the issue, but, you know, I tend to operate in left academic circles, you know, scholarship. And, and um, I know, you know, that the, the, uh, the stone people like to call us, you know, kind of liberals or whatever, but the reality is like, no, right. Everyone I know who's I would consider legit on the left doesn't accept this stuff. They look at Kennedy as kind of a continuation of kind of Cold War policies. I had once had a professor who's really conservative guy who said, you know, there are like three prime kind of Cold War figures, um, Harry Truman, Dean Acheson and John Kennedy. And I think he's right. Kennedy uh, increased the defense spending at that time to record levels. Um, you know, people like to cite even like the, the limited test ban treaty, which I think is, is really useful because they use that as an example of Kennedy trying to get out of the Cold War and becoming a peacenik. Limited test ban treaty was supported by everybody. It had massive public support. It had, I think, 82 votes in the Senate. Uh, people like Nixon and Everett Dirksen campaigned for it. And after some initial reservations, the Joint Chiefs of Staff came around to support it. And one of the things that's really important here, too, when you're talking just about kind of the Soviet Union and the Cold War, is that everyone in the United States, despite their talks of a missile gap and all the alarmism and fear and hysteria, they were all aware the United States had overwhelming dominance. In 1960, the U.S. had close to, I think, 20,000 nuclear warheads, and the Soviet Union had like 1,600. So everybody's aware of that. So the idea that, you know, Kennedy is somehow going to end the Cold War and eliminate defense spending and, you know, that he's the first person to have discovered this. It's just, it's preposterous, really. Well, sure. Yeah, he was certainly a a Cold Warrior. Um, One thing that I I do feel like is a fissure is his policy on on the third world, which uh, you've described as an alternative strategy of hegemony. And I think it is that. He's he's not a socialist. He's not an anti-imperialist, but he is recognizing uh, liberal nationalism in places like the Congo, Indonesia, Algeria, which you recognized in, in 1957, um, the Alliance for Progress, right, which is not not socialism, but it was providing zero interest loans to Latin American countries for land reform, um, which was reversed under LBJ, by the way. Is that not a, a pretty big uh, bomb to throw at, at the American ruling class? Like, wouldn't they be pretty hmm. upset with that, even though it's, it's not socialism? There are different kinds of, of hegemony, different kinds of empire. And I mean, imperialism is liberalism. So the idea that, that, I mean, you always, you know, you want to put reform with it. I mean, it's kind of goes back to what was it? William Howard Taft, he said, we'll we'll substitute dollars for bullets, right? We're going to send in bankers and educators and reformists and kind of the forces of modernization, to use Rostow's term from the 50s, instead of just sending the troops in, right? Uh, But if you look at, you know, you mentioned the Alliance for Progress. I mean, the Alliance for Progress ends up substituting military military aid and creating the School of the Americas and all kinds of military aid programs and uh, uh, and military training programs rather than development. Um, It's used to keep in power kind of reactionary regimes um, if faced with a decision internally between kind of a reformist regime that may, you know, kind of have some nationalist or leftist tendencies, the United States will support military regimes and it did throughout the area. So 
you know, uh, the Congo is one that they bring up all the time. And, and Kennedy seemed like legitimately aghast when um, Lumumba was assassinated. At the same time, um, uh, Portugal had bases in, in, in Africa. So the U.S. wouldn't support these Portuguese colonies and their own liberation movements because it didn't want to piss off the Portuguese government, which at the time was really far right wing. So even then, I mean, Kennedy continues the pressure on Cuba. He helps organize a coup against the Brazilian government of John Goulart, which occurs after he's dead, uh, against Chetty Jagan in Guyana, which occurs after he's dead, uh, against um, Karim Kassim in Iraq. Uh, and while, this is while Kennedy's still alive. And Kennedy and the CIA send operatives to Baghdad to help target uh Iraqi leftists who are then assassinated. The U.S. is working actually with remnants of the Ba'ath Party. Saddam is not really involved yet. He's a minor functionary. But so even then, I mean, I think what Kennedy does is a, is a form, I think, of, of liberal imperialism. But it, you know, it takes different forms. I mean, you don't always have to kind of go in and you know uh, do like you did in in Guatemala in nineteen you know fifty three or, or in Vietnam or in Cuba or in Nicaragua in the in the seventies and eighties. Right? You, there are different ways. You know. Um, the, the coup against Evo Morales a few years ago was was not, um, you know, there were no troops involved there or against Lula in Brazil. Right. There's just a lot of different ways you can do it. Right. I guess I guess my point is that, you know, when it comes to you mentioned Guatemala or Congo, uh, Iran, these are places where they're not actually communists or socialists in power, but there are people who are messing with uh, American interests and nationalizing right. things. And Kennedy right. was, was supporting some of them. You don't think that was enough motivation to, to no, at least inspire? No, I mean, I don't know who Kennedy, Kennedy I don't know if Kennedy's supporting anybody who was trying to nationalize American businesses. Uh, Patrice I mean, Lumumba? Uh, that, no, I mean, that wasn't enough of a, there, actually, I don't think there's that much American investment in Congo at the time. I think I mean, I think Kennedy understood that 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 after there's this major conference in, in Indonesia in 1955 in Bandung, where the third world decides to kind of consolidate, you know, cooperate. And I think, you know, there were plenty of people, not just JFK, who understood that the third world now had to be addressed differently, that it was emerging. And that's where the battlefield of the, the Cold War would be in places like Congo or Indonesia or India or any of, you know, Vietnam and Cuba, obviously, Brazil. And so... Um, you couldn't simply, you know, kind of use the, the iron heel all the time. And you would have to approach these differently with things like modernization, um, aid from you know, IMF or World Bank. But but that's always conditioned. I mean, World Bank aid, IMF aid, uh, um, Inter-American uh, Development Bank aid, uh, you know, Alliance for Progress aid is always conditioned on certain political circumstances. You know, socialists certainly aren't going to get it right. But even if you're, uh, you know, kind of have this nationalist brand, um, if you're too closely connected to labor unions, that was a big issue in Brazil. The FLCIO actually helps the U.S. government. The FLCIO is actually supporting the CIA and a lot of these. The FLCIO is sending representatives all over the world to undermine left labor unions. So I, I don't think there's anything there that really would would rankle the, the ruling class. It's just, you know, sometimes there are tactical differences, but I've never seen anything to suggest that Kennedy was was really changing the the imperial you know kind of hegemonic approach that everybody you know in modern u.s history had followed and i mean that was just consistent with everything he'd done his entire life you know 
And so I want to ask you, you are an expert on, on Vietnam and you, your book, um, Masters of War, really showed how at first, as you said, the generals uh, were not in favor of going to Vietnam. It was it's more of a political decision. Um, but one of the orders you mentioned earlier, NSAM 263, yeah. um, order, you know, ordered all U.S. personnel out by 1965. Uh, you point out, though, that uh, they wanted to train Vietnamese troops. Um, you th- so you think that is a uh, decisive evidence that that the war was not going to end? Yeah, I mean, NSAM 63 doesn't order troops out. It's it's a speculative, right? It's saying if things happen in a particular way, we can get rid of a thousand troops by the end of 1963 and maybe have them all out. But, you know, at the time, there was never any thought given to having what happened you know, what eventually happened take place, right? Nobody thought this would become like the Vietnam War that we know now. Right. Nobody anticipated Americans. You know, when Kennedy took over, there were 800, like, so-called advisors there. So NSAM 263 is consistent with policy before and after, in fact. NSAM 273, which, you know, was, was filed about a month after Kennedy died, pretty much says the same thing. And I think that's the key there. there nobody in the United States anticipates the United States military sending in huge numbers of troops and taking over the war. And it's always been clear that this should be Vietnam's war. That's what Nixon's Vietnamization, you know, over 10 years later, that's what it's about. We need the Vietnamese to take over the war. So to suggest that that um, uh, NSAM 263 was some kind of an abrupt shift and Kennedy was ready to withdraw from Vietnam, just it's just not there. It's consistent. And that's something, too, that the, I think the Stone and the Eugenie on these people who I think are lunatics, frankly, uh, uh, do is there's a real continuity, which they discount. I mean, if you look at policy, you know, in Kennedy's last six months and Johnson's first six months or the continuation of the war until Tat, there's very little difference. I mean, uh, uh, you have the same people. In fact, you know, you have Rusk and McNamara and Bundy, Ross Dow. So there's not some kind of shift in personnel or, or the way they look at things. Uh, LBJ agonized over Vietnam, I think, more than Kennedy did. In fact, I would give LBJ far more credit on being dealt a, a bad hand. They're more of sympathy or something. I don't know, but a, a being dealt a horrible hand and a bunch of horrible choices left over from Kennedy and, you know, clearly made the worst of them. The military's position didn't really change. I mean, you know, if you read anything I've written, and what amazed me is in 1965, right before the U.S. sent ground troops in, William Westmoreland, who's, you know, if anybody's associated with the bloodshed in that war, you know, soldiers called him Waste More Men, General Waste More Men. But in 1965, in January, he's saying we can't send ground troops in because, you know, we'll end up just like the French fighting. Uh, we'll be an occupying force in an essentially hostile foreign country. This is Westmoreland in January of 1963 you know, who's the architect of the war. And he's by far the most gung-ho among those people. You have people like Schuper against it, Wheeler's non-committal, Harold K. Johnson, the Army Chief of Staff, has great reservations. Everybody's concerned. Nobody thinks it's a great idea. They want to gear up to, you know, contain the Soviet Union in Europe. So the idea that Kennedy is, you know, kind of going against some kind of headwind here and is trying to, you know, be a peacenik is just preposterous. The, the military had no interest in Vietnam, no great interest really in Cuba. They wanted more, they wanted more money. They wanted more weapons. They wanted more appropriations. They'd rather fight uh, on the Potomac than on the Macon, you know? Uh, so um, it, Kennedy's one of them. I keep going back to that. Right. Yeah. Well, on that, you know, I think Russia, of course, is a big uh, point for 
for a lot of his sort of inner circle, uh, Alan Dulles in particular, who um, had a plan for a preemptive nuclear strike in late 1963. This is the plan was for 1963. This is early on in the Kennedy presidency. Um, but he said it would it'd be in late 1963, preceded by a period of heightened tensions. Uh, JFK walks out of this meeting. It says, and we call ourselves the human race. There's uh, documents that he uh, had back channel communication with Khrushchev. They were negotiating. Um, so you don't think, though, that uh, that should be accepted either, that um, Kennedy was seeking detente with with Russia in some some form. I mean, the, the Soviet Union was way weaker than the United States in every category. And they knew it. And the U.S. knew it. And the U.S. knew that they knew it. And they knew the U.S. knew it. Um, and Khrushchev had been making overtures. Uh, I mean, journalists were reporting this at the time from, from early 1961 onward. Uh, Kennedy continued to ramp up military spending. Um, Kennedy, uh, you know, kind of took a hard line. Um, Kennedy proposed a multilateral force, which would have given operational control of nuclear weapons to ex-Nazis in Germany. Uh, Kennedy, um, you know, uh, never apologized for the, the, uh, the uh, intensity, the size of the American uh, deployment in Europe. Um, Kennedy was probably to the, you know, more hawkish than, than um, Wilson or de Gaulle. Uh, so, no, I mean, I think, you know, when you have overwhelming strength and overwhelming power, um, you know, you, you have the ability, you have the, the, the um, fluidity in the room to make overtures and to make compromise. And Kennedy did nothing like that. I mean, look at the military budgets, look at the weapons developments. Um, you know, uh, I've written, uh, I have a blog called afflictthecomfortable.org. Uh, and I've written a long piece that I put on there. And you can just look at the footnotes on, because uh, uh, I do have a section on the Soviet Union there too, uh, and national security policies, but they're really consistent. I mean, in many ways, Eisenhower was probably, I mean, Eisenhower not only did the military industrial complex speech, you know, where it said, beware of the military industrial complex, but in 1953, when Stalin died, he he made that famous speech, you know, every warship, every gun is a hospital that isn't built and a school that's not built and so on. And he, at the end, he said, this is not a way of living. It's humanity hanging by a cross of iron. There's no equivalent to Kennedy doing that. You know, some quips to a journalist aside, I would call Eisenhower actually far more willing to compromise, you know, the open skies treaty, things like that, than, than Kennedy was. I mean, Democrats in general uh, have been more hawkish. Liberals tend to be more imperial. They have different so ways overcompensate, of overcompensate, right? I don't know. I mean, I think it's just, you know, liberalism is, is generally it's a, it's a capitalist ideology. Right. And and it's uh, especially interested in kind of creating these kind of havens all over the world for investment, for trade, for cheap labor, for resources. And so forth. I, you know, in 1976, uh, Bob Dole was the the vice presidential candidate, and and uh, um, caught hell for saying that you know the Dem all the major wars of the 20th century have been democratic wars, and, and in fact that was kind of boilerplate. That was just accepted, and it's basically kind of true, right? And you know, I mean, there's there's clearly a bipartisan imperialism there. But liberalism is an imperial ideology. And we're seeing that right now, right? With with Biden, right? Who's, you know, gung-ho on, on Ukraine, who yesterday or the day before said, you know, I'm a Zionist and who uh, has taken a hard line against Iraq and, you know, hasn't done anything about sanctions in, I'm sorry, Iran or, or Venezuela or Cuba. So, uh, you know, Kennedy is just one of them. He's, he's in that world. He's of that world. He's one of the, 
the marquee figures in that world. So the idea that these people had soured on him because he had become, you know, untrustworthy is just, there's no evidence for it. You know, I, I could be, you know, I tend to be a smart ass when I talk and talk about how dumb and crazy these people are, but I'll just say there's no evidence for it. Yeah. Uh, well, you know, I, I guess I would have to just disagree on the no evidence for them. I mean, I just, you mentioned uh, devil's chessboard. I, I have that right here, actually. Yeah. Uh, very, very clear that Dulles hates Kennedy, loathes Kennedy. Oh, yeah, absolutely. They hate um, each other. Yeah, absolutely. Right. And, you know, there's NSAMs 55 and 57, which forbade the CIA from conducting military style operations. This is after Dulles is fired uh, from the CIA. It's clear that uh, Dulles was at the farm, which is a CIA compound in Virginia during the JFK assassination when he was not uh, an employee of the CIA. Um, it is, And we know, of course, that he conducted coups all over the world. Uh, why is it so implausible that he conducted one here in America? But I mean, those coups were done with Kennedy's cooperation and support from 1961. And they were, I mean, that's what America does. America does coups, right? And so I mean, Kennedy didn't have any problem with getting rid of Kareem Kassim or no, Din Ziem. I mean, even though he was aghast that they were killed, Kennedy, I mean, you can read, like, there's a play-by-play. National Security Archive had some great documents on the Ziem coup. Mm-hmm. Uh, they have an entire uh, book, you know, on it. Uh, uh, so Kennedy's deeply involved on a daily basis in the coup planning for months before November 1st. Um, yeah, a lot of these guys don't like each other. And the Dulles brothers are are, are are pretty invidious. I mean, if you read their, you know, what happened in Guatemala, you know, their right. fingerprints were all over it. But Eisenhower approved of it, too. I mean, you know, the Dulleses aren't some kind of uniquely evil family. They were Americans. They tended to be, you know, rougher and probably more harsh, but they fit into the American, you know, kind of ruling class quite well. Uh, you know, if you look at their family background, I believe their father was like an Anglican, not a big shot or something like that. So they're kind of old money, you know, New England type. So, um, you know, he and Kennedy didn't get along, but the, to make the leap from that to this major conspiracy uh, to kill a president is just there's just no evidence. I mean, that's that's a huge thing about that. Like how many people are allegedly involved? You have the CIA, you have allegedly the military, you have all these other people. You have people who are kind of allegedly covering up for for Oswald, people who are ignoring Oswald, people who are tailing him. I mean, we're talking about a really I mean, look at right now on January 6th. You know, everybody's singing. You have low level age. You have sip alone. Now you have Meadows. So you're not going to keep that over 50 years now, you know, almost 60 years. That's not going to be, you know, these people aren't going to remain quiet for all this time. You're not going to have no clear proof of this, this coup. And there's, there's no, um, there's just no motive for it. And I keep going back to like, you know, the first thing you asked me is like, I just don't think it serves the left well to kind of look for these deep state machinations all the time when the reality is just right in front of you. It's just in front of your face. And, yeah. and we don't need heroes. We, we need organization and hardcore, you know, uh, activism. Not somebody's not going to come save us at this point. Right. I, I mean, and again, I don't think, you know, anybody if I was around in 1960, I, I likely would have voted for, you know, one of the, the socialist candidates or something. I wouldn't have voted mm-hmm. for Kennedy. Um, but I think, you know, in terms of um, Dulles, there is uh, just so much. I think the, the evidence is, is pretty overwhelming uh, that he had you know, some connection to the assassination. And there has been people who have come forward, E. Howard Hunt, uh, David Sanchez Morales, have both admitted later in life that they were in on a plot. And there is like a, a fair amount of, of evidence that um, most Americans uh, believe, like it's a majority of Americans don't even accept the the official narrative. And I think, you know, it is to the extent that they have been successful keeping this quiet, 
you know, I think of the Catholic Church, right, who uh, covered up molestation scandals for decades and generations. Uh, and that has to do with the way institutions work. I don't think you need a massive conspiracy that everyone's in on. I think you need a couple people at the top who know about it. And then the vast majority of the institution, which just doesn't ask questions that keep their nose to the grindstone and they don't, they don't point to these things. But even with that, there has been a lot that is, that has come out, you know, Lee Harvey Oswald, very clear. He was an intelligence asset, got a, a loan from the state department after defecting to Russia uh, to buy a house. Um, so, I mean, and, and then just wrapping up on this section, I, I just want to say, and I, I actually agree with you somewhat that conspiracy theories can be very um, bad for the left and that they can be political dead ends. Uh, I think they can be demobilizing, um, you know, and if people are just going to sit around and, and watch documentaries, uh, that's that's not useful. Right. But um, that doesn't mean that that has to be like the cause du jour of, you know, I don't think DSA, for instance, should should make the Kennedy assassination its top priority by any stretch. But we, when we're talking about things like um, I won't say the deep state, but the the empire, American empire. How do we dismantle that? How do we dismantle things like the CIA? I think these pretty clear examples of high criminality um, should be brought to light. I think that's that's so I don't think, you know, that alone will do it, but that at least causes a precedent for for taking on these things. Um, oh, so ab ab oh, absolutely. I mean, yeah, it should be brought to light. And I mean, I think we do that more by uh, taking a kind of a clear headed view of of things the U.S. has done all over the world. And mm -hmm. spending a lot less time on the JFK, JFK assassination doesn't prove anything about the U.S. empire. Um, you know, you could talk about Iraq, for instance. I mean, very few Americans know the, the kind of backstory to Iraq or Iran mm -hmm. or pretty much or Venezuela or pretty much anywhere. Right. I'd much rather talk about the, the coup against uh, John Goulart than Brazil. I think there's a lot more to learn from that than the Kennedy assassination or the uh, operations against Chetty Jagan or the, the Contra Wars in the 80s, which are horrific. Right. I mean, just one of the worst examples you'll see of the empire just crushing these revolutions that are trying to, like, you know, teach people how to read and, you know, put some prenatal care in, in place, things like that. So, you know, we, we mentioned earlier, like the war report and, and Americans, like, you shouldn't trust official documents, right? I, mm -hmm. I you know, I don't, I don't get caught up in the minutia of it, the, what, you know, the parlor games and the scenery is stone called it. There are a ton of people who do. And I never knew anything about this world until like six months ago. And it's kind of a cracker factory in a lot of ways. But there are people who study this and they go blow to blow, blow by blow with stone. And those people on whether Oswald was here or there, what the bullet looked like, this and that, all that stuff. And I don't really that's not what I do. I'm more interested in kind of the larger policies of it. But there is clear there's clearly a counterpoint to all these these arguments about Dulles's participation and and the assassination itself. I just don't don't feel like becoming an expert in that. Uh, and, you know, in terms of distrusting the warning report, that's fine. I've never studied it close enough, but government reports should be taken with great skepticism at all times, because mm -hmm. clearly people are always trying to cover somebody's ass, you know, in that. But um, at the same time, you know, the great eye of stone, Israel Feinstein Stone, a great journalist, often said, you know, you could find the truth in government documents and in places like that. These people, and we're seeing this right now, right, with the January 6th commission, a lot of them like to talk. They like to run their mouths. And I mean, Howard Hunt said he had something done at the deathbed. I think Howard Hunt, I mean, you could, Howard Hunt has no credibility on anything. You know, there may have been people who wanted Kennedy dead. That wouldn't shock me at all. Uh, there may have been people who talked about it, uh, but to pull it off uh, and to do it, you know, the way they did, it just 
you know, I, I just don't see any any motive for it. And uh, based on what you know, what I've read about the minutia of it, it just the, the stuff just doesn't hold up. There's way too many gaps in it. Uh, you know, I mean, Oswald was on the radar. He was a he was a communist. He was publicly he, he wasn't he a communist though. That's, well, that's that I do have to put my foot down on. He he, he, he was, was uh, the one man. He founded the chapter in New Orleans of the, the Fair, Fair Play, Play for Cuba. Yeah, right. He was the only member. Uh, he had he has right wing associations. He was, I think, pretty clearly uh, an intelligence asset who did not uh, really know the first thing about Mark. But I but I agree. I don't yeah. want to get caught in the yeah. the minutia either. Um, you know, we, we can agree to disagree on this one. Yeah. I do want to ask you one more question before you go. Yeah. You have a really interesting article about um, academia and the left. Uh, and, you know, there's another sort of misperception people have that I want to get your take on that, you know, the left is just filled with, or excuse me, academia is just filled with Marxists that they're just <laughs> all over the place indoctrinating yeah. the young, uh, you're a professor, you've been a, an academic for a while. What's the reality there? No, I mean, there clearly are a lot of liberals, uh, people who, you know, like Hillary Clinton, Obama types supporters, you know, and, and that's usually in the humanities, you know, in the sciences, you have a lot of people who are getting, you know, Pentagon and CIA contracts and things like that. Um, in terms of like left or Marxist, that's just preposterous. I mean, you know, I, I know people who are, you know, I think legit leftists, but the academy itself, it's, it's, uh, you know, when Wright Mills wrote the power elite, he included universities in that, um, universities are, I always put it in parentheses, badly run corporations, right? Uh, and that's kind of what they are. I mean, they're not really, you know, kind of accountable to shareholders. They're interested in, you know, branding and getting big names and spending a ton of money on um, sports programs and dormitories. And, you know, they have this arms race going for, you know, wellness centers and dorms and dorms have spas and Starbucks in them and things like that. Um, they're, they're tend to be fairly craven university administrators, Generally, not all, but generally are craven. So when we talk about like cancel culture and a lot of a lot of that's just because they don't want to deal with it. So if somebody challenges somebody and it can be on the left or the right, the left does a lot of stupid shit, too, in that regard, uh, you know, kind of going after people who say or do the wrong thing. Um, I tend to be pretty firm in my kind of I'm like Chomsky in that regard in terms of free expression. You know, people can say really stupid bullshit stuff that I disagree with, but. I appreciate you know, that as a as a podcaster. Yeah, no, well, I am too. Right, and and no, I mean, I I have a lot of opinions that I frankly just don't even voice that much anymore because I just don't want to deal with it. I mean, I think the universities are liberal in the sense, you know, like they support Clinton and Obama. They hate Trump, you know, uh, no doubt about that. Uh, but then you have cases like the Colin College case here in Texas where four professors were fired for like questioning COVID reopening policies and tweeting about Mike Pence. So. Um, you, you know, it's, it, you have to be careful. Um, there's an attack on tenure now, so it's just going to make it worse. But, uh, in general, I mean, I come from a, a working class background that I went to Ohio state, you know, state school for my PhD and the university has a lot of people in it now who, whose parents had advanced degrees who come from elite institutions. And I mean, I'd rather hang out with the working class people I know in Mahoney Valley of Ohio than, a bunch of Ivy educated professors. Uh, and, you know, I think, I, I think one thing that the left, I don't know about the left, but liberals certainly don't understand with regard to Trump because of Trump was a racist. Trump is a sexist. Everybody's a racist and sexist. There may be, you know, I mean, clearly there are racist and sexist associated with Trump there. That's undeniable. But mm. I think the anti-elitism is such a huge part of that. And I don't think people are willing to even, you know, kind of grasp with that idea. 
But Trump really, I think, touched on something like this anti-elitism. These people who think they're better than you, they're telling you what to believe and they make shit up like critical race theory. Right. I mean, that's just that's just a red herring. But the fact is, it ties into that. These professors know better than you and they're telling you you're racist and they're telling you you're bad and all that. And I mean, much of it is just absolute bullshit. But but it's this anti-elitism. I think it's really important. And professors really set themselves up for that. I think academic academia, academia really in a lot of ways is, is really elitist and snotty and snobby. And, and so um, I think the left needs to do better. I mean, just kind of mocking. I mean, there's a lot of Trump people are unreachable. Absolutely. No doubt. I mean, we're seeing that right They're out there with swastikas and clans and their, you know, AKs and stuff. Yeah. I'm not, you're not going to sit down and have a, you know, a nice sit down heart to heart, but there's a lot of people out there who come from working class backgrounds. They've suffered. I mean, here in Ohio, where I am right now, uh, they hate the Clintons because of NAFTA. Uh, they hate the Clintons and, and the Democrats because of deindustrialization. Uh, Clinton ignored them. Trump came here and said, I love you. You know, I love you, baby. And they believed it. I mean, they know it was bullshit, but he, he tried. Right. And I mean, J.D. Vance is a Senate candidate now. So it's and he's, you know, this is ironic. Right. This guy's from Yale, Hollywood guy who's running as this kind of man of the people against the elitist and. I think the the universities, you know, and the educational system in general kind of play into that. They really need to kind of step back and kind of think about the way they present themselves. You know, I mean, the right is far worse. Absolutely. But Mm -hmm. it it could be done better. And the university presidents are just like university boards. Um, You know, you tend to have billionaire businessmen who had the boards of regents and, you know, all those kind of presidents are making, you know, many millions of dollars. Football coaches are making huge, massive, but usually the highest paid employee, yeah. state employee in almost every state is some kind of sports coach. So it's it's an ugly system. I'm, I'm really shocked and horrified by what I'm seeing. Um, it's purposeful. I think a lot of these folks who run the country saw what happened in the 60s, you know, or even in the 70s with students out there protesting. And they said, we're not going to let that happen again. And so I think we're seeing the fruits of that now where. It's uh, it's really kind of a control, you know, student debt is a form of control. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it's it's not it's not pretty. So not a, a not optimistic, unfortunately. So. Well, uh, sorry, we couldn't end on a more optimistic. But, uh, uh, Robert Zonko, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, thank you. This was really great. I really appreciate it. Yeah. And where can people find your work? Um, uh, I, uh, my blog is at afflict the comfortable. That's one word. A-F-F-L-I-C-T-T-H-E comfortable dot org. Um, I'm on the green and red podcast, which, uh, we put out like one or two a week, which we talk about history, politics, all kinds of stuff. I a lot of organizers and activists, people on the streets who otherwise probably wouldn't get attention. Uh, I, I have a webpage that hasn't gone up yet, but uh, you can just Google search me. I do a lot of other media. Uh, so, uh, yeah, I just a Google search, but afflictthecomfortable.org is blog and red, green and red podcast. We've done a lot of really cool stuff on that. And uh, I like talking to people like you. This was really oh. great. I really appreciate it. Yeah, really. You've done your your homework and you know this stuff. So I, I like talking to people like that. So well, I really appreciate that. Uh, thank you so much. Thank you. Yep. And that was uh, Robert Bazanko. I am still standing despite being, uh, I'd say, owned, if not half owned. I, I would like to think that I, I held my own. Uh, but I will let you, listener, decide. I think it's it's a very interesting topic. Um, welcome back, co-hosts. I know you were uh, watching that with bated breath. I couldn't. I couldn't breathe. I couldn't speak so the whole time. 
I was watching. I was asking myself, who has the bigger bazonkos here? I didn't. Okay. <laughs> Wanted to avoid the name. It is a great name. I love that name. Yeah, we'll fix she that. My name. Um, couple just things I want to tack on at the end. Um, now this, I, I think he he had some great points about uh, who who studies this and who doesn't. And you know, I happen to think that. Um, I agree with Noam Chomsky, right? That um, expertise should not be like the reason someone is taken seriously or not. And I, I do disagree with him that there are, you know, some some pretty serious people who are, are maybe not scholars on this who have dedicated their lives uh, to little, um, you know, aplomb and little uh, financial merit reward to, to researching not only the JFK assassination, but the MLK assassination and Bobby Kennedy. And uh, like I said, it's not that fruitful uh, personally or possibly politically until we get some sort of um, breakthrough, which which may never come. That's I think that's a totally fair point. But I do just want to read uh, a quote from. Oh, and remind people that yeah, uh, a different point of view on Vietnam and JFK could be found in John Newman's work. He was a military intelligence officer who has written a really interesting history. And there's some overlap between him and Bizanko, but I think they do have some pretty important points of departure as far as what uh, Kennedy uh, wanted to do about Vietnam. He's, all, he's also featured in the, the uh, JFK Revisited uh, documentary. But I want to read a quote from Michael Parenti, who is... A, a great uh, left-wing thinker uh, who wrote about the JFK assassination, actually responding to Noam Chomsky and Alexander Coburn, um, who are skeptics that it is a conspiracy theory. They think that that's a joke, but he responds to them, a structuralist position, this is in the 90s, structuralist position should not discount the role of human agency in history. Uh, institutions are not self-generating reified forces. The great continuities of corporate and class interest, uh, which is Coburn's phrase, are not disembodied things that just happen of their own accord. Neither empires nor national security institutions come into existence in a fit of absent-mindedness. They're actualized not only by broad conditional causes, but by the conscious efforts of live people. Evidence for this can be found in the very existence of a national security state whose conscious function is to recreate the conditions of politico-economic hegemony. So yes, completely important to not become a liberal, not search for saviors, and not uh, become obsessed with um, sort of fanatical conspiracy theories. But I also do think that we can't just be hyper-structuralist about it. Part of being a Marxist is looking at things dialectically and not just uh, viewing things as deterministic, but um, there is agency there as well. And and uh, there, people like John F. Kennedy have quite a bit of agency. So I do think analyzing these things is, is important, but uh, I think um, that was a really interesting conversation. I'm glad uh, the professor came in and spoke with me. Now play choking victim. <laughs> Does everyone get my reference? Okay. Uh, um, was that, was that the button you wanted to put That's on that? It. Yeah. Yeah. Damn. It was really good. Truth bomb. Parenti truth bomb. Michael Parenti, one of the earliest podcasters. True. If they were around back then, he absolutely would have had one. Uh, he has the. Have you ever seen the yellow tape? The yellow no. tape. Is that where Donald Trump pees? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that the tape where Donald Trump pees, Anders? Um, maybe that's in there too, and they cut it out. But oh, it would wow. explain the color 
Uh, there's a lecture he gave, I believe, in a university in Colorado in the 80s, and it's just yellow for no reason. Oh, I've seen that. I know it's yeah. <laughs> the yellow tape adds sort of when you call it that adds a kind of a mystique. Yeah, it sounds like he gets he pees. It sounds like he on. pees. I think the person who recorded it left the tape in their pocket when they went to the bathroom. Right. And, and then they came back and they were like, oh, the splash. Yeah. Oh. Now my Man. tape is yellow. Speaking of piss, I uh, I was cleaning my apartment and there's a room no one has been in for quite some time. And I was cleaning it out for apartment reasons the other day. And I picked up this jar of, there's a, a tin can of like nuts. Come I on. swear to God. And uh, I, I rattled it around to see like, oh, are there nuts in this can still? I swear to God, I think there were pecans. I can't remember because I threw it away and it didn't. There's no rattle. It was a bunch of liquid and oh. it was piss that someone. Oh, shit. And I got pissed on my hand. And while it was happening, I realized it was like a year old. Because <laughs> like the oh. last that had been in this room was like a year ago or some shit. I hope you that were going to tell us that it was like those springs that look like snakes that pop out. No, it's a uh, yes, but they're all yellow and old and kind of brownish. It was a pecan full of pee. Wow. Do you know who left that? Who left that gift for you? I have a suspicion. I have a a theory, but I'm not going to say it on the podcast. Do you have any names to name on the radio while we're here? (laughs) Andrew's researching whose piss it is. Oh, that's the sound. From the description and yeah. The sound of research. Compiling a profile. Did you change your mic? What the fuck just happened? Not me? No. Yeah, I think you did somehow, bro. Me? I didn't do anything. No, you just changed your you mic. You definitely up, changed your mic I, because it sounds different now. You sound like you're inside of a pecan right now. <laughs> Hold on. Well, great That's work, plugs. everyone. <laughs> plugs. At Anders Lee here on Twitter. Thursley1 on Instagram. My substack is uh, Anders Lee dot substack dot com and if you are in the new york city area a couple fun shows coming up uh on july 30th i'm hosting a stand-up comedy show botanical comedy at misfit kava in bushwick there's going to be some great performers sahib singh among others wendy steiner david twighty friend of the show sam ruddy uh jaffer khan very funny people um and then if you're listening as the day that this comes out, we got something happening for a good cause tomorrow. Something incredible Isn't that for right, you. Alex? Yeah, July 16th, the Saturday, 8 p.m. Doors open for another paid protest. The stand-up comedy show of the DSA. Become a do a rank and file agitation and go to this comedy show and laugh. Laugh for the party formation that we are corroborating now for you. And I'm going to be there and Andrew's going to be there. Kath Barbadoro, it's going to be a lot of fun. You got to come on down to that. That's at the Secret Loft. And the link is going to be in the show notes. We are producing that show. You got to come on down. And we're raising money for the youth wing of Democratic Socialists in America. Do it for the The, children. For them to recruit uh, students, young people, college dropouts. It is uh, fun happened? to say, like, <laughs> like, do it for the children, and then they're all, like, 
20 years old. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, you should do it for them anyway. You son of a bitch. You too good? You think you're too good? Trying to turn teens into socialists and give old people a heart attack by saying it like that. Yeah. I, I'd like to plug uh, bathrooms. I think everyone should use them instead of peeing in cans and leaving them in my apartment and then unfollowing me on Twitter like a fucking weirdo. Um, I think I know who it was. All right. Anyway, that's it. I don't have any other plugs. I'm not doing anything. I'm on hiatus. I'm having a summer over here. Nobody pee in cans in Jake's house. Yeah. 